0: Welcome to the Freedom Story Project podcast, sponsored by John Brown Lives in North Elba, New York. Freedom Story Project is a national Our Story Bridge project that collects and shares personal narratives recounting the activism and engagement of everyday people working for justice and for human and civil rights, not only here at home, but around the world. Freedom Story Project is made possible by a 2022 AARP Community Challenge Grant. In this, our third episode, you will hear stories centering on women and gender. These stories will take you on a chronological journey from women's suffrage all the way to today's fight for bodily autonomy. Listen to storytellers share their personal experiences dealing with gender and what they feel it means to live life authentically as women. Our first story is told by Peter Slocum, who discusses the details behind the marker placed in Keene Valley, New York that commemorates local efforts in the early 1800s to obtain voting rights for women. Here is the impact of the Adirondack Campaign for Women's Suffrage.
1: My name is Peter Slocum, and I want to talk about the historic sign that we're installing on August 7th here in Keene Valley in the heart of the Adirondacks, which will celebrate the role of women organizing to win suffrage, the right for women to vote here in New York State, which had an impact on the national campaign as well. This sign is funded by the Pomeroy Foundation, supported by the town of Keene and the Essex County Historical Society and the Keene Historical Society, is all about the effort that local people made to organize and run a campaign to win women's suffrage of course in 1915 when this started only men could vote and as a practical matter only white men could vote because there was limitations on black men's being able to vote and so the, the women who were campaigning had to go and convince men to vote to vote in a statewide referendum to let women have access to the franchise as well. The suffrage efforts are headquartered at this house in Keene Valley, which is right next to the historic library across from the community church. And that house was um, owned and operated, uh, occupied by the Notman family for many years. They were from New York City and summer people up here. But the campaign involved many people who were local folks as well as some summer people. And they would go around from village to village in the Adirondacks to have a little talk on a village square or some common place to push for suffrage. And then they would organize and go door to door in these towns to try to get hold of men and convince them to sign pledge cards in effect the way we still do and get them enrolled in the women's suffrage party. If so they needed men, as I said before, because women weren't allowed to vote. So they would then do that. Sometimes they would go to three and five towns in a day in these relatively remote sections, then come back, check out the cards, add them up and do their um, follow-up for the campaign. Now, Mrs. Catherine Notman is the one who was the head of the campaign here in the Adirond, this section of the Adirondacks, not just Essex County, but also south towards Scroon Lake and then on down toward Lake George and Glens Falls. So it was quite a big area. And they she organized many other women in the area to do these this campaigning. It was a really um, grassroots Efforts. They didn't have tons of money. There was no big advertising, TV advertising or anything like that, or radio advertising in those days. It was just door-to-door politics. And they went um, from, in 1915, there was a referendum which lost statewide, and 19, but they didn't give up. They said, okay, we'll come back. They got the legislature to pass another proposed constitutional amendment, and they came back and 1917, with another effort, which won by only about 53% statewide. Here in Essex County, they won by 15 votes only. And in the town of Keene, I'm sad to say, we lost by four votes. So, But the campaign succeeded in an important way, not just for New York, but because New York was the first eastern state, big eastern state, to grant women the right to vote it had a major impact on the national campaign which finally was successful two years later in 1919. so this really shows that local organizing counts it can work and you can organize local people to get out there and change their neighbors minds and to do that for the cause of justice and spreading the value of the right to vote is what this sign is all about
0: Our next story is from author Lorraine Duval, who shares with us details about her book, Finding a Woman's Place, the story of a 1970s feminist collective in the Adirondacks. Finding a Woman's Place documents the experiences of seven women and their eight children who left their husbands and jobs to live communally and free from the confines of a patriarchal society. Throughout her story, Lorraine discusses with us her research process and the deep connections she has made with the women she met as she wrote her book. Here is Lorraine's story, Finding a Woman's Place, the story of a 1970s feminist collective in the Adirondacks.
2: Hi, my name's Lorraine Duval, and I'm going to be talking about my book, Finding a Woman's Place. In 1974, seven women with their eight children left their husbands, jobs, and families to live communally, to live independently, free from the takes in the confines of a patriarchal society. They called their new home a woman's place. They purchased an abandoned resort in the town of Warren near Lake George. My recently published book, Finding a Woman's Place, tells their story. I've spent the last three-plus years doing research on this Adirondack community, finding newspaper articles from that time, the first being an article in the Sunday New York Times in 1974 in November. My biggest joy is finding and meeting many of the women who are part of a woman's place. Some I found through local connection. I was having dinner in Wilmington, and my friend asked, what are you doing now? What's, what's your interest? And I told her about doing research on a woman's place and she said, oh, Jeannie and Susie met there. And Suzanne, Suzanne, like, right in Lake Placid, used to go all the time. And she she's st- still has friends with women all over the country, including Colorado and Arizona and Texas. We've had reunions on this site with these women. It's just, it's been wonderful. It's been the highlight of my research is meeting these women, new friends I've made. I wanted to interview and find the principal of the the principal founder of A Woman's Place. And I found her in, in Dunedin, Florida, and went and visited her. She has Alzheimer's. So there was a sad time when I first met her and realized that. But she introduced me to her friends. She remembered some of it. We, we had dinner a couple times. I went to her house. It's been a wonderful time, and especially meeting her daughter, Robin, who was a teenager at the time. Robin remembers how the kids in Warrensburg Central School made fun of her For living in this commune. But how enriching her life was. She shared with me, AWP, which they called a woman's place, inspired me to become my own woman, to look outside the box in all aspects of my life. After she read the book, she said, Oh, she thanked me so much for writing it. She said, I'm putting it in a special box just to save for my great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. With COVID-19 limiting gatherings, I'm thankful I was able to share the story of these brave women early in the year in St. Petersburg, Florida, where me, Marie, and her friends attended. And I had one Zoom reading but that was not satisfying. I had two great meetings in Upper Jay and in Keene, in Keene Valley at the libraries, which I'll cherish forever. Hopefully someday I'll also be able to give these in person. The Adirondack Press has been very, very kind to me, including articles in Adirondack Life and Adirondack Explorer. The best input I got was a, just a regular old reader. And he said, Lorraine, first of all, let me tell you how much I enjoyed reading Finding a Woman's Place. The story about the process of forming the collective was engaging on its own merits, but your very personal, inclusive, and loving voice deepened for me the connections between the women, the community, In the feminist movements of the 60s and 70s, to think that such young people, some with children, made the courageous, audacious leap away from convention and into into they knew not what. Wonderful, and you were part of it, and your writing allows others to participate by imagination. Thank you.
0: Moving from women's suffrage and tales from the 1970s, our next story is told by modern-day mom Alison Haas. Allison, an archivist and mother, shares with us how the intersection of her work and personal life has prompted her to reveal the hidden lives of women. She discusses the importance of sharing struggles and strengths, and hopes that in doing so, her daughter and other young girls can learn from underrepresented women. Here is Preserving Women's Struggles in History from Allison Haas.
3: My name is Alison Haas, and I'd like to talk about my rights as a woman and my role um, as a mother for a, a young daughter. And I, through my career, I have worked at a museum, and as part of my job, I tell the stories of different women through history. Several of these stories have always been hidden within the archives, and I have recognized I think even more so in having a daughter that it's so critical to show the the strength of women that have had to work almost extra hard in being seen, to be seen as um, valued, and that there were times up until Title IX where they were discriminated, certainly within sports history, and that they weren't always included. And even today, in, in my own job, I have noticed that Women are not always included, and if we ask too many questions, if we are assertive, if we, um, it can be deemed as becoming, quote, increasingly anxious, or that we're be- becoming disruptive. But when I see my male counterparts asking those same questions, that reaction is not given to them. And so it's this nice contrast, not a nice contrast, but a contrast between my job in trying to preserve the history of underrepresented groups, but all groups. And the groups that always submerge are the white men. And regardless of your skin color um, or gender, it's It's something that keeps being hidden as women, or we continue even today in 2022 to stay quiet. And for my daughter to be at a critical age where she may start to lose confidence as a female, as she sees changes to her body, um, and more and more exposure to people in society that also want her to, um, maybe be quiet sometimes is I'm at a, I'm at a point in my life where I no longer want to be quiet. And so that is why I am pulling more and more, um, in my job and being increasingly more vocal and making sure that our stories are told. And so my job in this museum is to preserve our history and the stories of the struggles of women and how it really needs to be pulled front and center.
0: In our next story, our storyteller, Jamie Collins, shares with us her emotional journey as she transcended her assigned gender at birth to living an authentic life as a woman. Jamie's story is an important one as she describes her experience of breaking free from socially constructed rules about gender conformity and instead choosing to embrace one's true sense of self. Listen to Girl in the Mirror, my experience as a transgender person.
4: Hi, my name is Jamie Collins. I am going to talk about uh, my experience as a transgender person and being forcibly imprisoned in a gender that's not mine. Um, This is my experience. It's not every transgender person's experience. But at birth, the doctor took one quick look at me and announced to my mother that it's a boy. Uh, And in doing that, he gave me a prescription, essentially a lifetime prescription uh, for how I was supposed to look and act and behave uh, Every aspect of my existence for the rest of my life. Um, but at an early age, I knew I was different. I felt it uh, in my bones. And I remember as a young child looking in the mirror and wanting to see a girl in that mirror. <clears throat>
2: um,
4: many years later, however, you know, in traveling uh, sort of to escape you know life not just to travel to learn things um but just to escape uh, i was found myself in taipei taiwan um and i had the most amazing memorable and most vivid dream of my life um and i knew that i needed to write something down to remember this and the words i wrote down were girl for the mirror was, girl for the mirror and <clears throat> You know, in, in doing that, I understood for the first time sort of really what this thing inside me was, though I still couldn't do anything about it. You see, I had grown up in the 60s and 70s in rural Wisconsin, and in that time, there were no role models and you know, in being transgender and, you know, there were no words for it, really. There was nothing that, you know, I could use to describe this or understand this and nobody was talking about it. And I couldn't talk with anybody else about it. So I just had to repress all of these feelings for years and years and decades. In fact, um, you know, until I began to really understand it. Um, Also in Taiwan, I met A woman, a lovely French woman, uh, who I fell in love with and married. We moved to France. We ended up moving back to the U.S. and, you know, uh, raising children. uh, And through the course of, you know, those decades of raising children, again, I had to repress these feelings lest it should all just unravel on me, Uh, my entire life unravel. Um, But eventually, you know, uh, I kept learning and unlearning, you know, the dictates of society, the dictates that tell us, you know, this gender has to behave a certain way, this gender has to behave another way. Um, And eventually, um, you know, I could not hold this back. Um, Marilyn Frye, an essayist um, back in the 70s, I believe it was 70s or 80s, wrote uh, an important essay um, on women's rights and, and oppression of women. Um, about oppression, and described you know, a birdcage. Oppression is a birdcage, and you know you could see the wires of this birdcage if you step back, but if you take a look at it closely, you can't see You know, you can't understand how any one wire can. You know, impede the flight of this thing that's caged within it. Um, and so, my coming out was a process of eventually being able to see the wires of my own cage and be able to understand, you know, what was holding me back. And in unlearning all those things, eventually, I, I found a way to um, come out to be myself. Um, to live my authentic life as a woman, and um, I have not looked back. Um, it's amazing how those rigid rules of society dictated my life, these rigid rules that um, are completely made up, they are societal um, dictates uh And the very fact of my being transgender is what helped me see the wires of my own cage. So I am enormously grateful for having been on the journey and the privilege enough to be able to, you know, live the life that I have and and see the wires of my own cage and be able to eventually step out of them.
0: Our final story is from Minnie Timuraju, the President of NARO Pro-Choice America in Washington, D.C. Minnie shares with us the importance of advocating for reproductive freedom post Roe vs. Wade and how she is continuing to navigate educating people on how freedom is for every body. Here is Freedom is for Every Body.
5: Hi, my name is Minita Miraju, and I'm the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and we are a membership organization, 4 million members strong, across the United States, advocating for reproductive freedom. And reproductive freedom means a whole host of things, but our primary focus is abortion, regaining the legal right to abortion in this country, post-Roe. Uh, And the devastating Supreme Court decision earlier this year. Uh, We were founded as the National um, Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws before Roe v. Wade was uh, the law of the land. And now we are, frankly, right back in that fight, trying to make sure we can fight bans, abortion bans in about 17 and counting states, as well as regain a federal right to abortion by codifying Roe and expanding access. Because as so many of us have always known, Row was always the floor, not the ceiling. And what that means was, although we had a legal right to abortion, an incredibly important thing for many people in this country, especially women, people of color in rural areas, access was always a challenge and continues to be so. So uh, we're here uh, to keep up the fight and to engage more and more Americans. We had this exciting midterm election where something like 90% of Americans were aware and supportive of access to abortion rights, eight out of the 10 Americans specifically wanting to see Congress take action. This is a new frontier for our fight. It means more and more folks want to join us. So we need to be ready and we need to be nimble and we need to be uh, aggressive about organizing people. So the most interesting part of my job has been you know, learning how to navigate the complexities of the issue and the terrain in our country, understanding that the issues in Texas are so different than the issues in California or even New York. Uh, and how do we talk to Americans of all walks of life now that everybody understands so importantly how profound this issue is? And abortion is, frankly, no longer the you know taboo subject among many of our friends in the Democratic Party. And the most you know difficult part of the job is even though we had a successful midterm election, By all accounts, as I said, 17 states have still banned abortion, and we can't change that. So it's really hard to think about how hard all of our members and our volunteers and supporters are fighting for access, for freedom, for justice, for all of these uh, women and pregnant people in this country. And yet we're still pretty far away from realizing the full uh, dream of Roe and beyond, right? So we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, we're rolling up our sleeves to do it. We're really excited about the fact that we believe reproductive freedom is more resonant than it's ever been before in the history of this country. And more and more, more Americans believe, like we do, that freedom is for everybody. And we mean every body. Every man, woman, child, LGBTQ folks, folks of color, immigrants, folks in rural areas, folks in urban areas, immigrants, uh, trans kids, everybody. And we mean that. And we, we are really excited to work with all of those communities to get this done.
0: Thank you for listening to our third episode of the Freedom Story Project podcast. If you would like to listen to more stories or want to add your own story, visit freedomstoryproject.org. Freedom Story Project is made possible by a 2022 AARP Community Challenge Grant. Freedom Story Project collects and broadcasts three to five minute audio stories and related photographs online, centering around themes of freedom and justice, human and civil rights, activism and engagement at local, national, and international levels. One of our goals is to inspire younger generations to tell their stories and connect to their communities and these issues, including through powerful personal narratives by elders who share their experiences. Freedom Story Project uses the Our Story Bridge methodology, making stories easily accessible and shareable. To learn more about Our Story Bridge, please visit... (music) ourstorybridge.org